This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use and provides general information only and does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs. BT Investment Talk by BT Investment Solutions is a monthly podcast produced exclusively for Australian financial advisors. Our investment experts, together with some of the world's leading fund managers, will provide thought leadership on a wide range of investment topics. Investment Talk is all about looking beyond the numbers, helping advisors cut through the noise, enabling them to have meaningful investment and portfolio construction conversations with their clients. Well, good morning. Hello and welcome to another episode of BT and Invest Talk. I'm Travis Grant. I'm an investment specialist and the Queensland Regional Manager with the BT Investment Solutions team. For today's forecast, we're going to connect with one of our international managers, T-Row Price. And joining us in discussions, it's a pleasure to introduce, uh, introduce uh, Nabil Hanano, Associate Portfolio Manager, who joins us from Baltimore uh, at 7pm uh, this evening, his time as we record this po- podcast. Nabil is an Associate Portfolio Manager with the Global Focused Growth Equity Strategy. Complementing Nabil uh, from our team is Adam Deering from the BT Investments Solutions team. Adam is the manager of our international equity sleeve, joining us from Sydney at a more respectable time. Thanks, Adam. So thank you so much to you both for joining us uh, this, this morning, Australian time, this evening in, in the US. It's, it's a great opportunity for our listeners to learn a lot more about you know, the international equities environment. So it's safe to say the first three months of, of this year have been somewhat tumultuous, the ongoing impacts of the pandemic, supply chain challenges, inflationary pressures, including the, the recent outbreak of war in the Ukraine. The volatility and uncertainty is, has been prolific across all the asset cl- classes. This morning when I got the morning brief, um, we hear that again, US Treasuries remain volatile with bond markets coming back uh, uh, overnight our time against the price hike the day before. Most of the, the, the bourses globally are down overnight and, and all prices again have risen sharply. And the Russians, of all things, are asking for Europe to pay for gas supply and rubles. Go figure. So it's very timely uh, to have one of our managers from our international equity sleeves uh, talking with us here today to share their insights on how they're managing portfolio performance and risk and what strategies can be applied to outperform the benchmarks in this current environment. So, Nabil, how are you currently making decisions with all this uncertainty? So, uh, first, thank you, Adam and Travis, for having me today. When I step back and think about in the simplest of terms of how we make decisions during periods of uncertainty or severe periods of stress, such as March 2020, we always say to ourselves, always stick to the framework and never waste a crisis. And an investor's framework is absolutely critical to navigating this change in uncertainty. When I think about what makes a great framework, I believe it needs to be flexible such that it can work in various market regime changes that we've seen over the past you know, decade that I've been doing this on uh, global folks growth. And it also should help remove emotion from the decision-making process. Now, our, our framework on global focus growth is we want to own quality companies on the right side of change where we have an insight to improving returns and we don't want to pay too much. Now, what I think is interesting about our framework is that despite being a growth strategy, you didn't really hear me mention growth. And we don't think of ourselves as trying to identify the fastest growers in the market 
or needing a minimum level of revenue or EPS growth to justify or consider an investment. Rather, we focus on insights of improving returns that can lead us to invest in secular growth, you know, cyclical growth, or self-help growth stories. Now, bringing it back to what do we do in periods of uncertainty, we have to make decisions based on the framework. It is the compass or the map that helps me avoid making bad decisions or overreacting in the moment. So for instance, if the Ukraine-Russia war ended tomorrow, commodity prices fell, and the stocks that we bought just sold off, I need to make sure that our insight is valid in kind of both of those scenarios. Otherwise, we're just guessing and chasing momentum, you know, the momentum narratives without having any real conviction to add on the weakness. Thanks, Nabil. It's uh, Adam, Adam Deering here, Portfolio Manager for Global Equities at BT. You, you, you raised an interesting point there, Nabil, around this idea of never waste a crisis. I wonder if you could talk more to that point. It's very easy to, in hindsight, to know what you should have done when a crisis is unfolding, but when you're in the, in the eye of the storm, so to speak, how are you trying to work out whether this is a structural change, whether I should be too flexible or whether, what, what I can look through from an investment perspective? So I, I think that's, and I think we should differentiate between a crisis and a period of uncertainty. So I think of like March, 2020 um, and COVID, that to me was like a real crisis. And that's where you had correlation snap to one. It didn't matter if it was Boeing that was negatively impacted by COVID it didn't matter if you were Dexcom that had a glucose monitoring device or something like Intuitive Surgical or, you know, um, a digital transformation company like ServiceNow. Those stocks all went down roughly the same amount. And one of the things that's hard for people to do is say like, oh, I have a stock down, you know, call it 50%. A better stock is down 40%. And I could actually trade my down 50 for the down 40. It doesn't feel great. And because you're, you're kind of locking in that loss, but it's those crises that you're able to upgrade your portfolio and, and buy things that you didn't have a chance to before, or you get a do-over. I think we, we talked before about how Dexcom was a company we wanted to own. Um, they make a diabetes, uh, um, a, a diabetes device that you stick on your arm. They had a great product cycle. It's a wonderful company. Um, but it always seemed to be at too high a valuation, somewhere in the 15 to 20 times sales pre-COVID. And that stock dropped 50% got back down to 10 times sales. We knew that it had a product cycle coming. It wasn't really impacted by COVID. And we're saying, guys, we got a chance to buy this thing. And we've got a do-over. And so, and so that's something that's different, I think, than uncertainty, where you have to stick it to the framework versus a crisis when correlation snapped to one and you get this opportunity to upgrade your portfolio. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, thanks to Bill. So, it, you know, speaking about that and the difference between crisis and uncertainty, when we look back on 2020, the market chased the COVID winners. We saw Zoom go to record highs, DocuSign, Peloton. Everybody knows the type of stocks that were just seems to be driven by narratives. And so my question for you is, the first part is, how did you think about valuations during that period when the market was just going to extremes and it was driven by momentum and sentiment? And two, now that some of that appears to be unwinding, how are you thinking about valuations in that environment? So this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Is I think there's this interesting balance of art and science evaluation. 
and we say with respect to our framework that valuation always matters, but it matters most at extremes. And outside of extremes, we think fundamentals tend to matter more. And then you and I have also talked this, uh, about this idea of the truth versus the game. And so I will tell you that absolutely a company's value is the present value, it's free cash flows. It's what, it's the textbook definition that we all learn in school. That's the truth. Now that definition doesn't explain how Zoom can go from 20 times sales pre-COVID to 55 times sales during COVID to just above six times sales today. And what creates that massive range in such a short period of time is the human element that we need to account for. That's the game. And so that's why we're always saying that we have to think about balancing this truth and game and how that happens. And what's different about growth investing is that so much of the value of a company is in the terminal value of a discounted cash flow analysis. You know, it could be somewhere of 75%, 80%, or even more if they're deeply negative in terms of near-term operating profits. Now, trends in the short term that are capitalized into the future tend to have massive impacts on the terminal value and therefore the value of the company and the corresponding valuation multiple. Now, we've had various market regimes over time. When I think about valuation, we say we have to think about valuation with context. The context is company fundamentals, industry fundamentals, and macro fundamentals. Now, during COVID, we had unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus, a substantial change in interest rates or the discounting mechanism for the truth in terms of discounting future cash flows, and this massive adoption of technology that also created a lot of narratives, which fueled that, that human element. So in Zoom's case, as we talked about, revenue growth accelerated to over 350%. Um, margin expanded by 25 percentage points. And during that period of time is when Zoom's valuation expanded from 20 times sales to 55 times sales. And that happens as people over-extrapolate and project in the future these near-term trends. But there's also this idea, and something I've come around to thinking more recently, is that people are willing to pay some value for capturing an extreme outcome. So as growth accelerates, that probability of that outcome increases and people are willing to pay more even. Now, Zoom's valuation peaked when its revenue growth peaked, it's call it 375% or thereabout. And it's interesting is once revenue growth starts decelerating, that range of outcomes narrows and people are willing to pay for a lower valuation because they could say, oh, I know how to value this right now, or the range of outcomes is narrow, I could apply a smaller valuation to it. Now, it's interesting and in how we talked about going from 55 times to six is now the opposite is in effect where there's now a negative range of outcomes with respect to churn, competition, and how far margin will decline as it reinvests in its business. And I think you could argue that Zoom is undervalued, but its valuation probably doesn't trough until we have clarity up to the, you know, when margins trough or when in growth, growth troughs. And the other thing we like to talk about in terms of this um, valuation is that narrative usually follows price. So when Zoom was accelerating to 375%, this was the platform of the future. Everyone was going to develop video applications on it. It was going to dominate in terms of one of the new like cloud platforms. Now it's like, this thing can't compete with team. What are they doing? They're losing subscribers and they're never going to be able to get it. They're not innovating anymore. And both were not true, but those were also what helped catalyze the multiple and different extremes. And so I think Zoom was a microcosm of what happened broadly um, to growth at varying degrees. You know, you and I have talked about chasm crossers versus imposters. And so back in 2020, we were really focused on saying, we want to identify the companies that weren't just benefiting from COVID, but we actually crossed the chasm and weren't just imposters that had a, a, a blip of, uh, of demand. 
Interesting. So in terms of that idea of, you know, imposters versus chasm crosses, when you're thinking about investments, how much leeway or what's your time horizon for thinking through whether Zoom could be a chasm crosser and how much are you willing, how patient are you willing to be with a company like that? That's a good question. I think it comes down to, are we seeing incremental proof points in that extreme outcome? Are the, is the company making the right decisions? So the fact that margins are going down, for instance, in Zoom, I think they're going from, they're going down 1500 basis points and they guided to go them down again the next year. That's fine in and of itself. You know, it's not the best backdrop for a stock, but we want to see success. Are they having success in Zoom phone, Zoom rooms, all the different APIs that are integrating with them? And if you don't see that benefit, that's something where we say, you know, this is something that we're not willing to invest in long-term because you're not seeing progress over KPIs that you want to see over the next three to five years. I, I do think it's inter- interesting there that we spoke about valuation for 10 minutes and didn't mention interest rates. And so it's worth, there's a you know, narrative in the market that interest rates going up is bad for growth stocks and good for value stocks. So to what, what extent do you think that that little heuristic is true and how do you handle that from your building a portfolio perspective? So when we've thought about it, we always, it goes back to that idea of extremes. Mm. And so during COVID, and, and this is just the best example because it's, it's so recent, you had real interest rates go from slightly positive to negative 100 basis points even though, and this was up until just, you know, six months ago or so, even though activity has been strong, um, inflation was actually high and people felt confident on growth again, before the Ukraine issue. Mm. Uh, To us, they were like, that doesn't make sense. Why are real rates hundred basis points, negative 100 basis points? Why is the 10 year 1% when inflation is 7% GDP growth is 5%. That was a, that was something that didn't, make sense logically. And in those scenarios, and, and of course, growth valuations were at, at very high levels still, particularly as, you know, in 4Q21. And so that's like a risk return framework where like that doesn't make sense. And we know that interest rates are a discounting mechanism and growth stocks are particularly vulnerable. Now we've kind of reversed that and we have the 10 years gone to two and a half Real rates are still negative, but closer to where we were pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And historically, you've seen you know tech stocks and growth stocks do okay after the first hike, as you get into a hiking cycle. And most of the reason is because economic growth is still actually quite strong when they start a hiking cycle. It's towards the latter parts of the hiking cycle that you have to start worrying about issues that they over-tighten and send the economy in recession. And you're going from such a low level right, of zero, still with massive stimulus, there really isn't a, uh, a problem when you think about what leads to normal recessions in terms of a misallocation of money. Really, the misallocation was in terms of like meme stocks and, and overvaluation of secular growth stocks, not like a credit problem like we had in housing or some, some buildup of some kind of debt problem. And so for us, we think that it matters but it matters when you're at extremes. And mm. so when you were 
negative 100 basis points and stocks trading over 30 times sales, that's not a very good backdrop, especially in the context of what was happening in terms of the fundamentals of companies, consumer um, growth in the general economy. And as we've kind of normalized and you've kind of taken the froth out of a lot of these valuations and we've gotten past the first rate hike and we don't really see rates going materially above to, to a point that's like materially constrictive, right? We had the 10 year at 3% just a few years ago, rates at two and a half. I don't think any company would really worry about that from a Fed's funds perspective. And so we think that we can invest in growth stocks but they have to have an insight into improving returns. That's what we feel is, is kind of like our offense, but also our defense is what we always have something getting better. People want to own that. As long as you're paying a reasonable price, those things tend to be more defensive. And so we think it's still a, a fruitful backdrop for investing in growth and you don't have to just pick one or the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thanks, Nabil. So, when I look um, back at the performance of, of the strategy, you know, 2020 was a great year for Alpha um, in terms of you're on the right side of change. A lot of those stocks you held uh, performed extremely well. 2021, sort of a year of two halves, and it was, you know, aggregate negative year um, in the later half there. So there was some good stock picking in the portfolio, but there were some tailwinds that supported this strategy. It seemed that everybody had come around to the view of being on the right side of change and wanting to own these stocks that you had already positioned in for valid reasons. And so when you look at your performance year to date, how would you explain the performance relative to your expectations and in the context of the market environment? So, so I'd say performance is, is disappointing. Clearly we always try to outperform for our clients every year. Um, I, I have to say, it's not, I don't feel too terrible is that I think we avoided a lot of the pain from the growth side mm. of the fact that it's really underperformed. And so that kind of traces back to the decisions we made in Q2 21 and three uh, Q21, where you saw a real resurgence in growth. And it was really on the back of this receding fear of reflation. We always talk about it on our team on May 15th, and that's when the CPI kind of peaked on a month over month basis. And that gave the green light for people to go back to growth that hurt us because, and we didn't chase it. And it goes back to framework where a lot of those growth companies that people rushed back into had decelerating fundamentals as we were starting to lap the initial adoption phase of those technologies because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then we also had this thesis that a lot of these companies were over earning because they weren't able to invest enough during COVID. And once they get out of this, they were going to want to reinvest in their business to accelerate, to drive adoption of their business and kind of capture that TAM. And so we didn't chase that. And that actually hurt us in the back half of last year and contributed to the performance in 2021, but I think helped us in 2022 in terms of limiting our exposure to that growth factor. And so really what I think happened, one, obviously rates have, have gone up, but two, you've seen a reset of their, of their fundamental, uh, of their business, kind of the returns trajectory of their businesses are declining. I think the things that hurt us when I think about this year is that, you know, in general, we had a, a portfolio position for a return to normal. We were overweight, uh, you know, travel, overweight growth oriented financials, and then China. 
And so what stands out pretty much so far this year outside of the growth factor we've talked about is really China and commodities, mm. which the latter is intertwined with uh, the war in Ukraine. So we'd started, starting with China, we started last year kind of increasing our bet in China, believing that the worst of the crackdown has happened. And, and we were actually avoided a lot of the pay, initial pain from the, the IPO being pulled. And we also thought fundamentals were starting to bottom as well with the regulatory backdrop for internet platforms. Now, over the past few months, fears have arisen on a number of fronts, including property, you know, with um, some of the property developers going under Evergrande mm-hmm. being the most prominent one, the viability of the ADR structure and a couple of other things. But the announcement that we had from Lu He, the vice premier, was one of the most full-throated endorsements of government support that I think assuaged a lot of the market concerns. And though we wait for incremental proof points of, you know, doing what they say, this was to us, this classic crick cycle that we've talked about, and that's crisis response, improvement, complacency. And, you know, we had a crisis in terms of confidence of the Chinese market. It seems like we're having a response now and we're going to the improvement phase. And so while we were caught offside early in China, we still feel confident and actually a little bit more confident given the backdrop of what the government said recently. And so we hope that's something that's going to become more of a tailwind this year. Now, with respect to the invasion of Ukraine, our view was that our financial holdings, where we have insights to improving returns, would be a hedge to commodities, particularly oil. So normally when you have oil prices rise, you typically see a rise in interest rates, and that would benefit our financials. But with the invasion, we saw the exact opposite. As commodities have spiked and interest rates have fallen as people sought safety, and that's driven underperformance in our, um, in our financial holdings. So commodities, and to a lesser extent, a lack of owning defense companies on the grounds of ESG principles have also hurt us. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would say is we're still kind of sticking to the framework. We still see travel getting better. I was mentioning to you before that I was just at Disney with my family and couldn't believe how crowded everything was yeah. or how expensive everything was. You know, we still believe in U.S. construction getting better with the Build Back Better bill that, that the government's passed and that accelerated in 2023. We still see interest rates moving higher, and we're actually starting to weighed back selectively into secular growth names where you have insights to improve returns at valuations that are actually reasonable. Mm. So we talked about, you know, Zoom, and that's a, that's a separate issue, but you have things like Shopify, that's back to its pre-COVID range, um, Square, or, or Block is its name, back to its pre-COVID range. Amazon looks really attractive in terms of its valuation. We think they're bottoming from a, a margin perspective and also from a revenue growth perspective. Intuitive surgical is one. So we, we see a lot of opportunities going back in growth, but we're still kind of positioned for that kind of that reopening kind of back to normal and selectively adding to growth where we see kind of an insight and improving returns. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Nabil. That's great. I mean, from my perspective, what I like about the strategy is this focus on insight into improving returns, which allows you to have a disciplined framework, but then shows up in the portfolio actually being quite flexible in moving that around in terms of where those insights and improving returns are. And, you know, we saw the strategy actually, you know, reduce their exposure to hyper growth names. You saw IT come down, you saw financials come up and it's that flexibility in the portfolio that I think is really valuable to investors and to be able to navigate these sort of uncertain environments. No, thank you. And we're going to continue, you know, continue day in and day out following the framework, having that, focus on com- quality companies where we have an insight to improve returns um, and we don't want to pay too much. That's kind of the compass, our North Star. And um, we still feel very, you know, confident in the outlook portfolio and the positioning in the future. 
Nabil, Adam, thank you for your insights today. It was, it's been really interesting to get some uh, understanding of your, uh, your valuation methodologies and, um, and looking at um, observations at a stock-specific level and the journey that has been the last 12 months uh, with COVID. It's, it's been great to discuss some of the strategies that T. Rowe is, is applying and thinking about and how they can be used uh, from a portfolio portfolio perspective. From a, a BC Investment Solutions perspective, listeners, we, we utilise uh, a wholesale institutionally tailored version of, of the T. Rowe portfolio, and that's the benefits that we bring to the table as, as a multi-manager. We thank you for listening today. Uh, if you'd like more information on, on our solutions, you can head to our website at bt.com.au forward slash BTIS. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, please do not hesitate to reach out. We thank you again for listening and thank you again, Adam and Nabil, for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Nabil.